Bonjour, hello, and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bill. This season, we are talking about how Canada is facing the future in an age of global uncertainty. Today, we will talk about universal pharmacare in Canada, and more specifically, why we don't have it. Canada remains one of the few developed countries with a publicly funded healthcare system that does not include universal coverage for prescription drugs. To discuss the future of pharmacare in Canada, we are pleased to be joined today by Catherine Booth, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and a member of the Center for Health, Economics and Public Analysis at McMaster University. Catherine studies health and social policy in mature welfare states with a focus on pharmaceutical policies. She has published a book, Ideas and the Pace of Change, on the development of public pharmaceutical insurance programs in Canada, Australia, and the UK. Hello, Catherine, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in with a big question. Why don't we have universal pharmacare in Canada, and why does that matter? Yeah, let's, let's start with what it means to say Canada lacks universal pharmacare. So currently, we have a multi-payer system where eligibility for public drug insurance varies by province. And within each province, eligibility for insurance is based on age, income, or uh, drug expenses relative to income, and sometimes disease status. So public insurance is a patchwork. And then um, we have different private uh, plans, and many Canadians have private employer-sponsored insurance. But this this patchwork of public and private insurance leaves many people out. Uh, The people who are most likely to be uninsured or underinsured are people living in BC, Manitoba, or Saskatchewan, uh, youth, people with precarious employment, uh, women are more likely to be underinsured than men, and racialized people are more likely to be underinsured than white people. On top of this, of course, we have a pandemic where a lot of people have lost their jobs. And for some of those people, when they've lost their jobs, they've also lost their drug insurance. So recent polling by the Angus Reid Institute has found that 23% of Canadians report cost-related non-adherence, which just means they haven't filled their prescriptions or they haven't taken their medications as prescribed because of cost in 2020. So in the last year, almost a quarter of Canadians report difficulty paying for prescriptions. To understand how we got here, um, we really have to kind of look back in time. And, uh, and this, is the, this is the premise of my book about pharmacare in Canada, Australia, and the UK. I make two main arguments. First argument, we can explain a good deal about current policy choices if we go back to early moments of policy development. And for health policy in Canada and and other countries like Britain and Australia, that means going back to the post-war period in the mid-1940s and 1950s, when policymakers were starting to seriously consider new health and social programs. So at this time, uh, after World War II, Canada made an explicit choice to proceed incrementally with health policy, to adopt one aspect 
of health insurance at a time. So this resulted eventually in the adoption of hospital insurance in 1957, medical insurance in, uh, well, nine years later, and then nothing. So the second argument that I make is that this, this choice of an incremental as opposed to a radical or big bang approach to policy development is really important because it shapes opportunities for policy change in the future. By policy change here, I mean adding new elements of the health system. And that becomes more difficult over time, particularly as uh, limited ideas about health policy become entrenched both among politicians and among the public. And we can see this in Canada really from, from the very beginning. Canadian policymakers thought that pharmaceutical insurance would be fundamentally unaffordable. And they thought this in the mid-1940s. Um, I don't know why. Their, their counterparts in Britain and Australia did not hold these beliefs. And remember, this is a time when effective drugs were pretty much limited to penicillin. It was not the therapeutic revolution and the expensive drugs had not yet happened. But... Wherever these ideas came from, they really persisted over time. Um, they persisted among elites, and this limited public expectations for pharmacare. It limited the public sense of what they should be demanding uh, in terms of their health insurance. When we couple these limited expectations with other types of healthcare affordability narratives over time, like we have to focus on fixing what we have, we have to fix crowded emergency rooms, we have to fix surgical wait times before we can add something new. In turn, that means there's no real pressure from voters on politicians to act. And, um, you know, years ago, um, I had the opportunity to interview the Canadian uh, health policy consultant and advisor, Stephen Lewis, and something he said, um, I just, I always come back to, he said, I think the public's expectations have been stripped in this area. They've bought the argument that it's not affordable, that pharmacare is not affordable, even though they're paying for it in the end. Um, and that's really where, where I think we are right now. This is a very important topic for many Canadians, and it's also clearly a key issue for you. You've been working on, on this topic for many years. What's the relationship between this topic uh, the issue of pharmacare and your own life uh, and experience. Yeah, thanks. So I, I started studying pharmaceutical policy as a PhD student, and I was looking for a case study for my dissertation. Uh, Canada's status as a country with broad public health and uh, broad, sorry, broad public hospital and medical insurance, um, and a lot of pride in its public health system, but no um, comprehensive universal public drug insurance was sort of an interesting puzzle. And I'll pause here and say, I tell my students it's okay to care about the policy outcomes that they're studying. But for me, in this case, the intellectual puzzle really came first. And it was through researching pharmaceutical policy and learning about it that I, you know, I came to develop these strong positions on what equitable and efficient policy should look like. So I finished my dissertation, I published my book, um, I started new research on public and patient involvement in pharmaceutical policy. And then in 2019, my preschooler was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And we were really so fortunate uh, with an early diagnosis, uh, an outstanding care team, 
shout out to the McMaster Children's Hospital, and a really supportive community. But this brought home questions that I hear again and again in my research. Who's going to pay for her insulin when she ages out of my private employer-sponsored drug insurance? Why is the 100-year-old drug that she needs so expensive anyways? And, you know, finally, and kind of crucially, I think, how can we accept the fact that other families who live with type 1 cannot afford the basic diabetes technology that we use to keep our child safe and healthy? And so, you know, all this is to say how to pay for drugs is something that we are all going to come up against in different ways. And some people, like myself, will be cushioned by privilege. But the rising cost of drugs and the increasing limits uh, on private insurance, as insurance companies find they have to raise premiums and restrict coverage, that means that that cushion is, is not guaranteed for those who currently have it. And many Canadians do not have a cushion and have not had a cushion. We are very grateful to you for sharing your story. And as you said, this is something that many, many people are going to come up against, and that needs to be changed. We have been talking about reform for years, and it seems that action is always being delayed. But there are solutions on the table that continue to be debated. Can you tell us about the potential solutions that would address this problem of lack of access to affordable prescription drugs for Canadians? We have been debating solutions for a long time. You're, you're absolutely right. And uh, this is actually an area where there's a reasonable degree of expert consensus in terms of policy solutions. Uh, and Danielle, as a policy scholar yourself, you know we're generally not a group that is in a rush to say, oh yeah, we, we all agree on what to do here. So um, the consensus uh, is around universal first dollar drug coverage. This would mean uh, a single-payer system, similar to the way we pay for hospital and medical insurance. It could be run by provinces with federal financial contributions and uh, conditions to make sure it's similar across Canada. Or, uh, and I think this is a little bit less likely, it could uh, simply be taken over by the federal government. And so, um, you know, kind of as an indication of the consensus around this solution, Universal first dollar coverage was supported by the Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare, which was a Hoskins report in 2019. It was recommended in the report of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health on the development of National Pharmacare in 2018. And uh, way back in 2015, this is the solution that was recommended by um, a group of academics uh, working in the Pharmaceutical Policy Research Collaboration out of the University of British Columbia. And that report was endorsed by almost 300 Canadian experts in health policy and health care. So it is a little bit unusual to have, to have this, this degree of consensus. And I think that is because there's a few key advantages of, of a first dollar system. First one is equity. If everyone has public drug insurance, it means access could be based on need, not based on employment status, geographic location, age, or ability to pay. 
The second advantage is it would drive evidence-based coverage. So what I mean by this is a universal plan would need to create a national formulary, which is just a list of drugs that are covered by the plan. Uh, and this would be done through a rigorous process that ensures only drugs that are clinically effective and secondarily cost-effective are included. And we already have a process for this in Canada. We're, a, we're actually an international leader in drug assessment through the work of the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies and Health. I think, though, that this potential advantage is sort of a, a tricky one to talk about because many Canadians are familiar with private drug insurance that covers pretty much every drug approved by Health Canada, whether it's effective or not. So a universal program wouldn't do this, couldn't do it. It's not, it's not feasible. It would cover a smaller evidence-based list of effective drugs. I, and I think many other researchers see this as an advantage, but I think it would be important to generate opportunities for the public to learn about Canada's existing, as I said, very robust system for drug assessment as, a, as sort of an element of any reforms. The third big advantage of um, a universal um, system is cost savings. A single-payer system means that government has the ability um, as a single-payer to negotiate lower drug prices. Pretty much every other country um, outside the U.S. does this, and that's why internationally drug prices are so much lower than they are in Canada or the U.S. So health economists have studied the potential cost savings um, of universal pharmacare and, and found them to be substantial. But here again, there's sort of a, a caveat that I think is important to communicating accurately about the way these advantages work. The cost savings would be to the social cost of drugs, to the total of public and private drug expenditure. So governments will pay more. You know, no one is arguing this is going to save governments money. Private payers will pay less but the overall amount will be less and it will be borne more equitably because it will be borne through our progressive tax system rather than borne by those who are, you know, who have the highest drug needs. So I think the advantages are significant, but they're not always, you know, easily communicated in a soundbite, as you can tell from me. So if they are clear solutions that are out there and there is consensus around some of them, why isn't reform happening? What are the factors, the institutional and, and political factors that are preventing universal pharmacare from happening across Canada? Yeah, that's an important question. And there's a number of, I think, significant barriers. You were talking, you know, you mentioned institutions. Provinces may be wary about giving up jurisdiction because they have, of course, jurisdiction over health policy. They may be wary of committing to nationwide standards particularly in the absence of solid financial contributions from the federal government. Another potential barrier is that universal first dollar coverage would entail major changes to private, the private health insurance industry in Canada. And the research-based pharmaceutical industry has also voiced hesitation um, about single-payer pharmacare. So these are real challenges, but I don't want to overstate them because my research suggests that one of the biggest barriers is actually a lack of political will. And that's, you know, that's a big umbrella term. So, you know, I'd like to kind of unpack it a little bit. 
I have seen more public discourse about pharmacare really than certainly than uh, I'd ever seen in the in the time that I've been researching it. And certainly multiple federal political parties, including promises about pharmacare in their 2019 election platforms, was a milestone. So we're talking about pharmacare more than we have in the past and in different ways. But when I kind of look more closely at the discourse, I do see some of the same limited ideas that have prevented pharmacare reform at different points in Canada since the 1950s. I see ideas that universal pharmacare is simply too expensive to be considered, that Canada should focus on more modest goals of like filling the gaps in existing insurance programs rather than realizing the equity and efficiency gains of first dollar coverage, or that other health spending must take priority. And so I think that effective challenges to these sorts of limited ideas, which are based in habit, not in evidence, um, actually come from voters, from Canadians. I do think that if Canadians make pharmacare, are, are able to make pharmacare a higher priority and are able to disentangle these, these complex but, but very real advantages in terms of equity and efficiency and evidence-based coverage, then I think our leaders will have to make it a higher priority too. Yes, thank you. Just a follow-up question. Here in Quebec, we have an insurance system that is specifically about filling the gaps. It's a public insurance system. The pharmacare that you're talking about would be different from what is done in Quebec, right? It would be different because the, the system in Quebec is universal in the sense that drug insurance is mandatory. But public insurance is the insurance of last resort, right? Employers are required to include drug insurance as, as part of their benefits. So many people still have private drug insurance. It just mandates public coverage for those who don't have employer-based insurance. However, still income-based premiums and co-payments that you know, research has shown is, is a significant results in significant out-of-pocket costs for, uh, for, for some people. As you probably know, it's a very expensive system. Um, and that is partly because it doesn't recognize, it doesn't realize the efficiency gains of having a single payer um, negotiate lower drug prices. Um, and I should say Canadian provinces uh, and more recently the federal government has started to work together on joint drug purchasing through the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance to try and realize some of those, those benefits. But the agreements that they make with pharmaceutical companies aren't, um, aren't binding on individual drug plans. And so that makes it really difficult to, to negotiate the cost savings that other true single-payer systems um, are getting. Well, hopefully following the pandemic, given the role of the federal government in purchasing vaccines all over the world, maybe this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, it, I mean, it might be. We shall see. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for a fascinating conversation and for giving us really the historical and political uh, context that we need to understand this debate about universal pharmacare in Canada, which is far from being over. That was Catherine Booth, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and a member of the Center for Health, Economics and Policy Analysis 
at McMaster University. To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs, and our public event, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash misc. You can follow us on Twitter at MISCCAN, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, you can subscribe for more episodes of Close Up on Canada. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and the staff at MISC, and to you for listening. Merci et à la prochaine.